Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Asher Marketing Podcast. I'm Anthony Giuliano, and our guest tonight is Mitch Stein with Pond. Mitch, how are you doing? I'm great. I'm so glad to be here in person. And well, see ya. yeah, thanks for joining us. I really appreciate it. And you just started a podcast of your own. So tell me a little bit about that and how it feels to be on the other side of the microphone. <laughs> it's a lot more work. I find it's <laughs> asking the questions is pretty easy. Uh, yeah, that's why I like this gig. It's the best one ever. I show up, I ask three questions and just nod a lot. So yeah. yeah. At the end of every episode, I do give the guest a chance to ask me a question. So I try to make it a little more conversational in that way. But um, no, it's fun to be on the other side. And I, I think it's a it leads to a better interview when you've been on both sides. Yeah. Uh, so it's it's cool seeing it from both angles. Yeah, I like the technique of having the guest ask you a question. I may steal that, actually. Who are some of the guests you've had on your podcast, and what are some of the things you've learned along the way? I'm asking this in part because maybe I'll learn something from you. But what's what's been that experience been like for you? Yeah, so I guess to give a little background, um, the podcast is called The Kids' Table. Mm-hmm. Um, it is a space to lift up the stories of nonprofit and impact leaders. Um, you know, the term really resonates with the audience it's supposed to resonate with, who yeah. they're like, oh, yep, I've been put at the kids' table before, sure. you know, or I've uh, been kind of discounted for my time or whatever in mm-hmm. the table. And instead of most instances where nonprofit leaders, it's like, okay, tell us what we should donate to you, go. And it's very like Shark Tank style um, and almost dehumanizing in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. We really want to bring the human story out from people, um, understand their background, what drives them, um, lessons they've learned, and even how that's applicable in a lot of other spaces, even outside of the nonprofit work they do. So um, we've had Andrew Gritzmacher from Habitat for Humanity, Josette Ryder from yep. Big Brothers Big Sisters, Connie Heflin, who runs Supershot. Um, we've had Kristen Giant, who mm-hmm. ran this uh, or started the Family and Friends Fund for Southeast Fort Wayne. Lisa Givan, she's the uh, Chief uh, Diversity, VP of Diversity, Equity, and Belonging at Indiana Tech. Um, and have a few more coming out. So I would say lessons learned um, in person is so important. Yeah. I think the the connection you can have with people is so much better, particularly feedback I've gotten from the folks I've interviewed has been like, well, oh, I felt so much more comfortable yeah. talking to you because the line of questioning was not like, you know, trying to call me out yeah. or trying to like put me on the spot, which can be a lot of media interviews. Yeah, um, It really is supportive and like caring. And I, I really try to bring that. And it seems it gets people to a really cool place where they're like, I can see them. They're almost like jumping up on the table yeah. and like getting excited because they feel heard. Yeah. And video conference feels like work. It, it can work. And we've done a few of these episodes remotely out of necessity, but this is a lot more fun. So thanks for doing it in person. Yeah. yeah. So we want to talk about a few things, your career path, and we'll spend most of our time talking about Pond and what you're working on there because it's a really a fascinating organization and doing some great work. And would love to hear more of that, about that. But your career path is also pretty amazing. Amazing. You grew up here in Fort Wayne, correct? Yeah, yeah. And then you went to Wharton. Yeah. Tell us how you ended up at Wharton and where you started your career path and how you've made this huge pivot to where you are today. Yeah, I think it's an interesting question because it sort of it looks looking back, it looks very intentional. Um, and I think for me, I for whatever reason, I, I always had a bit of like a chip on my shoulder, like I, I needed to outdo it or out, you know, outshine what people were expecting or be better. And um, I think when I was a freshman in high school, I like walked into the college counselor's office and I was like, um, so, you know, I don't really want to be a doctor or a lawyer, so I guess I need to work in business. And I looked it up and Wharton's the number one business school in the country. So I'm going to go there. All right. <laughs> 
<laughs> so what, what high school did you go to? I was at Canterbury. Canterbury, okay. Yeah. And it's the college So council. a lot of high achievers yeah. around you. Yeah. yeah, I think it's important, right? Because that yeah. was, it was made possible. Sure, and, sure. But even then, uh, you know, the college counselor was like, okay, sit down, let's talk about backups. And I was sort of like, Screw you. Backups like, are for other people. No, yeah. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, I'm like, of course. Yeah, you apply more than one place, but like, let's nurture that dream. Yeah. You know, and yeah. and it's sort of that. And I was like, no, tell me what I need to do. Lay out the list of things, huh. you know, take this many APs, get this score on your test. And I was like, okay, I'm going to do it. And it just was like a, um, a real commitment to someone giving me the plan and yeah. I'm going to do it all. Wow. And I'm going to do as best as I can. And I, I really resonated with opportunities like that when I got to college. Um, someone approached me about walking on the rowing team. Mm-hmm. I'm, as anyone in Fort Wayne would know, there's not much rowing presence here. Yeah. I had literally never even seen a boat. It wow. was just like something from the movies. Wow. Um, and the coach was like, just come check it out. And I uh, went to a few of the walk-on tryouts and all of a sudden really picked it up and loved it. And I was like, how do I get good at this? And he was like, well, this is all the extra workouts you're going to do. Come in every day for a second practice. And by the spring, I was racing with all the recruits who had done it in college and were recruited to go wow. to college for that wow. and did that for four years. So okay. I think those, those moments when it was like something really hard, but there's a playbook mm-hmm. in how I do it. Yeah. I can like dive into that and be super motivated and um, get through it. And I think that's part of why banking as a career choice was attractive to me because I was in an environment where it was what a lot of people were doing mm-hmm. and everyone's like, oh, well, you know, Goldman Sachs is the hardest place to go. And that's that's the hardest place to get a job. And I think for me, it was like, well, how do you do it? Mm-hmm. Tell me how I get there. You know, it's yeah. very like <laughs> regimented. If, if you give me the steps, if I know how to study, if I know I'm going to ace that test because I can do it. Sure. Um, and so, you know, that was how my first internship um, was in Philadelphia at their Goldman office. Again, it, it sounds more intentional than it was. I was sort of like, well, I'm at Wharton and people do finance from Wharton. So I'll try to find a finance internship for my summer yeah. year. And I'm rowing. I want to stay here uh, and practice with my coach in the mornings. And then... Um, you know, be able to do an internship. And Goldman was the only company recruiting on campus for sophomores for Philadelphia. Okay. So it was like the only option. Yeah. Well, still, it sounds like you had a ton of confidence at a young age because, you know, yeah, there's a path, but you still have to believe that you can achieve that that goal. Was that family? Was that friends? Was that just how you're wired? What What gave you the ability to say, yeah, I can do this even if it's difficult? Um, yeah, I mean, my dad and I are incredibly close, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, both him and my mom came from incredibly humble beginnings, uh, both grew up, my dad in Southern Indiana, they actually lived in the same city for when they were in middle school, but they didn't know each other from Seymour, Indiana, which is like a tiny town in Southern Indiana. John John Cougar Mellencamp. Yes, exactly. He was in the same, uh, high school class as my aunt and uncle, um, on my mom's side. Um, but you know, they so it came from very humble beginnings. And I think my dad, who ultimately became a doctor, and he's been a doctor in Fort Wayne for like 35 years, um, but, you know, he, he did not have much example of anyone going to college, sure. let alone, you know, a professional degree like that. Sure. And for him, he got to school, joined a fraternity. And most people, that story goes in the direction of like, <laughs> and started partying a lot and yeah. whatever. But for him, it was like the first time he had a group of people that studied and encouraged him to wow. study and tutored him. And he learned how, you know, they helped him frame his time so he could get his work done and learn and progress. And that became I think that was really transferred to me of that attitude of like, figure out what you need to do. You're going to work hard and get through it and get to the thing on the other side. Yeah. Um, and so that that definitely translated to me, but he was not, it was very much by example. Like mm-hmm. I think about when I was 10, I decided I wanted to start playing tennis. I had been swimming 
before that and I got really burnt out and I was like, I wanna start playing tennis. And my dad was basically like, okay, we'll go practice before you even go to school. So we'll get up at five and we'll go hit balls for an hour um, before I take you to school. But I will never wake you up. You have to come get me out of bed mm-hmm. when you want to go. Yeah. Because it was never like him pushing me to do it. It was like, okay, you recognize what you want to do and you can figure out what you need to do to get there. And I'm going to help you and support you along the way drive you to tournaments when you want to go, but I'm, you have to sign up for whatever tournament you want to go to. Like it was never, it was very much a lead by example and be there to support and never like pushing me, telling me what to do. You got to take the initiative. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So, so going back to your time at Goldman, tell us what was that like and why did you ultimately decide that that wasn't what you wanted to do with the rest of your life? Yeah. So I think when I got started there after Philly, I moved to New York and got into, you know, the bigger investment banking scene there, um, did an internship and got asked back. And that like, it very much fills that validation need, which I think was always driving me of like, you're going to work really hard, like harder than you've ever (laughs) done anything in your life. Um, But then people that you look up to and respect are going to, you know, First of all, you're going to get paid well and you're going to get like all these compliments sure. and it's like push you to work more. And it's sort of this cycle that you yeah. get in um, that fed me in a lot of ways. But I think as I went along, I was kind of grasping for like, I don't know if this is what I want to do forever. Like, I really love the responsibility I'm getting and how much external interaction and like all those things were great. I wasn't like in love with the financial markets. Mm-hmm. You know, it was like I loved getting clients that I had and getting to kind of build relationships. Yep. And be an expert on a market where people came to me to have knowledge on something. And then, you know, whenever you're an expert, like it's always more interesting to engage in this space. So I enjoyed all of that, but I was like looking for more. And I was on this one team for almost four years, ended up like knew I wanted to do something different, but I really liked being there and the culture and everything. So I ended up getting a job in the executive office, uh, working directly for the CEO who was Lloyd Blankfein at the time. Um, and spent a year and a half there doing totally different, was not finance related, um, much more strategic and Mm -hmm. um, kind of managing uh, his engagement with the business around the world. But that brought me to like a 10,000 foot level to see how much else there was out in the world. Yeah. Um, And I, after that, was trying to figure out what to do next, similar experience and ended up going into the technology banking business, working in, um, you know, mergers and acquisitions, IPOs of software and internet businesses primarily. And that to me was like, I, I took a, I stood up and saw the bigger world out there. And I was like, well, that's where the most interesting activity is. I want to go cover that. Mm -hmm. And I think as I started covering it, I started to see there were founders of successful businesses that looked a lot like me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, really maybe what I was going for when I wanted to have that validation and um, that con- like that real connection with my work wasn't just covering that space as a banker, mm-hmm. um, that I could build some of that for myself. So right. that was kind of a lot of the transition of my own personal like understanding of what was driving me. Okay, so, so you could have continued and been successful in one world and you decided to do something completely different. So. Tell us a little bit about why Pond. Why is that the direction you went in? And maybe give us a definition of what is Pond. Yeah, uh, of course. So, you know, it, was a, it obviously it was a journey. Um, it started really with a belief that I could do something more entrepreneurial along with identifying a real passion area. Mm-hmm. So I think a lot of entrepreneurs, um, I've met with a ton of founders. We interact with a lot of founder-led tech companies. Um, and I sort of put them into two camps. There's a lot of people who were like, 
I just want to be an entrepreneur. I want to be a founder. I love solving problems. It could be something with the asphalt industry. It could be, you know, healthcare. Like, I just want to find a market with a problem and go, like, figure out a solution. Mm -hmm. There's another camp that's like, maybe I didn't, it wasn't my life's destiny to be a founder and entrepreneur, but I found a problem that I cared so much about mm -hmm. that I couldn't sleep at night and I had to go figure out a way to solve it. I'm definitely in the, the latter camp. Okay. It was not like, I just want the, the fame and glory of being a founder. Sure, sure. Uh, or, you know, whatever drives people to in, in that like building experimental phase. Um, I was working with a nonprofit as a fundraiser, a board member, and I was covering the technology industry as a banker. Mm -hmm. And I just saw this like massive gap in how tools and technology were developed adopted, maximized uh, within the for-profit world and the nonprofit world. And I just couldn't get over it that I'm like, this is so like, wrong. Why would we not, if we all give our money away to donate to these organizations, why aren't we not also making sure they have all the best tools and services really powering their impact? And why are we, why do we settle for people say, oh, it's a nonprofit. So mm -hmm. it's like, of course they don't have the best tools or of course, you know, they're behind. Like I heard that all the time and it just frustrated me so much as yeah. I got to know these people better. Uh, I just feel like they deserve more. And I felt like there was a non-philanthropy answer. Okay. Like I, I, I felt really strongly that my background understanding markets, market making, marketplaces, these companies I covered in the technology space, that there was something to be applied to the nonprofit, the business of nonprofits. They spend two and a half trillion dollars a year mm -hmm. as an industry. Yeah. It's like over 5% of the US GDP, yeah. 2 million organizations, one in seven people work at a nonprofit. Okay. It's a massive industry without any centralized marketplace of where these purchases are made. So, so when you talk about you know, a non-philanthropic solution. Is that because people want to give to the mission, they don't want to give to operations, or is it more complicated than that? Yeah, I think uh, it, it it's two two pieces. There's an um, the attitude thing you brought up about uh, why are you giving? Mm -hmm. if, if you don't want to give to support the operations, which is so many funders and major donors who are like, no, I'm going to endow this program. Mm -hmm. Okay. How do you think that program is most effective? It's, yeah, it sure. is how it's managed, the data is collected, how that's used, how sure. that's marketed, how it's communicated, how you're engaging with donors. That's all tech-driven mm -hmm. um, and people-driven, investing in people, which are both often bucketed and overhead. So mm -hmm. there's definitely an attitude problem, but the bigger issue is the fragmentation. Mm -hmm. So the problem with philanthropy is it's not a central mm -hmm. thing and it's not, um, it, There's it's also not interconnected. There's like, tens of thousands of private foundations, fewer than, I think it's fewer than 20% of them have a website. Really? Yes. Well, is that because they say, we give away money, we don't need to market ourselves? Yeah, when yeah. they're, you know, run, run by families or yeah. stuff where they, they've done it privately and independently. Sure. But guess what, how accessible is that yeah. to people that need the funds? Yeah, it's or, as if they don't exist. So, yeah. so that, I, I, my goal was not to say like, I'm gonna go change philanthropy, like by bringing every foundation together or every donor together in the same space. I sort of saw this door number three to say, well, you know, something that every nonprofit does is spend money mm -hmm. and buys things mm -hmm. and buys tools and services. And if we took that out of the responsibility of each individual philanthropist or donor or foundation to, you know, weigh in on how they do that or, or fund it, could we start to put that into more of a central marketplace mm -hmm. to bring more value to nonprofits uh, and make the best tools and technology accessible and affordable? 
Okay. So, so is part of the problem just the size of nonprofits? They tend to be smaller organizations. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm looking at your hat as I say this. Staff members tend to wear many different hats. Yeah. Uh, you know, we were talking to a previous guest about the fact that the person who's raising money is often the same person who's in charge of marketing. Is that part of the problem that you saw? And this is a way to alleviate that, that issue? Yeah. So I think it's helpful that I'll take one minute to walk through sort of what our journey with Pond has been so far. So when we launched and when I left Goldman, really the idea was it's not an individual product that's gonna solve the tech gap in the space. It's not like I'm gonna go create the email marketing platform every nonprofit's needed and like we'll be done sure. because there was the this connection missing, the infrastructure, the marketplace was missing. So our first idea was, oh, we'll just create the Expedia or the Yelp of nonprofit tools and services. If yep. you get them all in one place, people can compare, see it all, write reviews. And so we spent a lot of time building that, getting sponsors on board to help, um, you know, make it a sustainable business model. And we launched that almost a year, actually exactly a year ago, and it failed. Mm-hmm. People wouldn't use it. Mm-hmm. So to answer your question, that's where we went from me saying, hey, everybody, come here, this great idea I have. I've got a great idea. Yeah. Which is, I think a lot of founders fall into that trap to say, <laughs> instead, hey, I'm curious to learn from you. Yeah, sure. <laughs> it for, that failure kind of forces that space to say, um, you know, I, I want to know honestly from you why you didn't come use this, mm-hmm. right? Or, or what was the problem? And learning yeah. from them. And it was, oh, I don't have enough time. Mm-hmm. I'm wearing all the hats. Mm-hmm. I didn't have time to come search for things. Uh, I don't have the expertise. I'm not a tech person. I don't know what we should be using. Or, uh, you know, we just continue doing it the hard way because I'm, I'm not an expert. Expertise is a big one. Money. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't have extra money. Why would I go shopping? Mm-hmm. Even if these tools, some of them may be free or they could Seems be giving you more money yeah. or they could be saving you, you time. the lack of money would drive you to shop. But it's, but, it's a psychological yeah. issue. If you're sure. uncomfortable yeah. and you don't, have, you don't have the funds and you're constantly told to do things lean mm-hmm. uh, and that you shouldn't yeah. be spending on overhead, right? You're, you're, sure. you're, you come up with short-term solutions instead of like the longer-term mm-hmm. infrastructure investments. But the single biggest thing was trust. Hmm. And not necessarily us. It was, I'm always being sold to. Mm-hmm. I don't trust people that want to sell me something. Yeah, sure. And, and they're bombarding me. I'm yeah. getting, talk about it's marketing podcast, right? Yeah. You think sure. about sure. in today's day and age with the digital accessibility of everyone, you can find every person's email, every person's phone yep. number. Um, you yeah. can find them on LinkedIn. You're, they're getting inundated. Yeah. So with all that Absolutely. noise, there's and, no way to And one of the things that I, I preach to my clients is that today especially younger generations, it's true for everyone, we all have really highly attuned BS beaters. If it sounds like marketing, people are running in the opposite direction. Yeah. Yeah. And so it was like, oh, wow, holy crap. Sorry, we we had a joke about editing out of here, so I'm going to keep myself from cursing. Um, You can say holy shit, it's okay. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We're we're not solving any of those problems. And so we just started iterating on ideas and started trying to be like, well, let's get rid of the frameworks we think exist around marketplaces. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, so they don't have money. What if we could pay them? Say they don't have any time. Okay, what if we just hand deliver stuff that could be interesting to them? You know, they don't have any expertise. Okay, what if we match them? with? And so that thinking was like unveiled this kind of light bulb moment to say, whoa, 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 wait a second. Marketing, yeah. every provider is spent, especially for software companies, what's their single biggest expense? Sales and marketing, mm-hmm. always. Yeah. Um, they're spending so much money on this in so many places they are willing to buy their time and attention, mm-hmm. but it never benefits the customer. Mm-hmm. And we're like, what if the customer could just say, 
hey, this is where I am, what I need, um, and be incentivized to share details about it because they know they're going to get relevant options yep. and they know they're going to get paid for it. Okay. And so that was the turning point to say, it's actually a marketplace for vendors to shop for potential customers. Huh. So so can you explain, taking a step back, yeah. can you give us a scenario, an explanation of how exactly does it work? Yeah. Um, I think the, the thing that happens the most is a CRM, a customer relationship management and nonprofit, often it's called donor relationship management yep. or constituent relationship management. Um, there are tons of nonprofit organizations who have run on spreadsheets to do that mm -hmm. thing. Um, and there are just so many good, cheap, affordable, accessible options to move that into a software system yep. to just have better automation and process. So that's a big one where someone either for their first time or they're moving from a really old system, which happens a lot. Yeah. Um, and so they're able to say, look, if I Google nonprofit CRM, I get a wall of ads and there's like 2 million <laughs> results. Sure. And I have no idea where to look next. And there's so many options. And uh, so they're able to just come to Pond and say, I'm a nonprofit. We use this tool. Maybe it's spreadsheets. Maybe on I'm on an old system. We want something that does X, Y, and Z. Uh, this is our size. So it, it sort of gathers all that information and makes it really accessible. And then that's it. You go back to your job. Um, Vendors then on our site, we're able to, to trigger when we say, hey, you sell CRMs, someone's here kind of fishing for that. Um, would you be interested in talking to them if you connect with them? So you can write a message. A lot of people have compared it to a dating app. Mm -hmm. It's like the vendor makes the first move yep. to say, oh yeah, we sell that type of product. You seem like a good customer. We've got the features you want. I would pay to talk to you. Yep. And you're, you're gonna get most of that money. Yeah. And so the vendor can say, yeah, I wanna talk to this person they, if the nonprofit accepts, so they swipe right on the yeah. request Yep. Um, and they end up connecting. Now the nonprofit gets $100 in their account on Pond, which they accumulate as they engage with people to turn around and spend on whatever they find. Okay. So someone ends up meeting with five different providers, this tool that they need, or maybe just some other things that people wanted to talk to them about that they weren't, didn't even know existed or weren't necessarily shopping for. Um, so they've got 500 bucks in their account and they decide to go with something that they found, they get $500 off of the price. Okay. So for the vendor, it's a loss leader of sorts. I'm going to have a better chance of acquiring this customer if I pay to play. Here, here's a tough question. We were talking about how people can access each other pretty readily today. What prevents the vendor from going around pond directly to the nonprofit? Hopefully that doesn't happen, but what, what prevents that from happening? <laughs> um, it's anonymous when you post. Aha. So okay. if you if you share information where they're <laughs> able to do some deep diving or whatever, and you know, like I said, anyone has access to anyone. So I'm not here to say like I can control sure, what every vendor sure. does. But why would the nonprofit respond outside of Pond because they're sure. not going to get paid? Sure, sure, that makes a lot of sense. And we have nonprofits who are getting cold out outreach from vendors and directing them to their Pond profile. So you're obviously not doing this all on your own. Let's talk about the Thank team. God. Yeah, let's talk about the team that's working with you to get this off the ground. Tell us a little bit about the people behind Pond. Yeah, so um, I brought on a co-founder about two months in because I tried to put together my own website on uh, Squarespace and I had an advisor who said, you're never allowed to try to design anything ever again. <laughs> so it became quickly very evident where my skill set was and was not. So um, reached out to someone I knew from Goldman who was a software developer. Uh, and originally she was going to start helping me out. And then we kind of we're really excited about working together. So she came on, Kiara Anderson's her name. She's based out of Brooklyn, New York. Uh, she came my co-founder and she was part of the 
initial launch. Sure. There was another engineer that we had on a contract basis uh, named Matt Yang, who's based out of San Diego. Um, and he helped us that initial product. And as we were taking a step back, um, you know, we weren't working with him for a while, but as we made this pivot and started to see some initial success, it was like, oh, wow, we, we need to expand the platform. Matt was able to join full time, which was awesome to bring him back in. And we're obviously really familiar. Um, and then, uh, a woman locally named Kristen Giant, who I had been chatting with for almost a year at that point. And she was doing some really interesting stuff in the impact and fundraising space and knew she had a deep background in the nonprofit world. And we were literally like furiously texting over the weekend about, you know, because it as this was unfolding, we were like, wait, they could just pay someone to talk to them. Why pay Google? It was like this kind of like the, felt like a fever dream over a weekend of like all this falling together. Uh, and so basically over the series of like 20 texts, it was like, okay, wait, so do you want to work with us? She's like, okay, yeah, sure. I'm in. And it was like, it just sort of came together. So, um, Matt and Kira on the engineering side, uh, Kristen has taken on our growth, uh, and kind of, um, when we think about all the engagement with the nonprofit world, how we're marketing. Um, so she's going to help me oversee that. Uh, and then actually a former mentor of mine from Goldman, um, who was an MD on, on the team I originally started with when I was just an intern and an analyst. Um, he had since left the firm and was kind of in between jobs. And we started talking, he wanted to help advise and ended up coming on full time. So he's our COO and CFO and he's based out of Austin. Okay. Um, so a distributed team working around the country, but you've got some pretty strong, uh, I want to say, investments here in Fort Wayne. Why did you choose to come back home to to make this part of the story? Yeah, I think um, a lot of people want to know that, want me to say that they're like, oh, you were just so, you, you wanted to bring it back to Fort Wayne. That's so great. But I, I think the cold truth is I quit my job at Goldman five days before the pandemic yeah, hit. Yeah. I had no intention of ever leaving yeah, New York. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But it was, I was actually out of town when, because I had quit my job and I was taking a few weeks yeah. off. So I was in Florida yeah. and it was like everything exploded. Yeah. And I actually met my parents down there and then we ended up staying for a few extra weeks. Like my dad's office was closed. Sure. Like we were just like, well, I guess we'll yeah. ride this out for a few <laughs> yeah. weeks down here as, as everything that the world seemed like it was ending. Um, and then by the end of that, New York was like, a war zone. Yeah. And my parents were like, well, you're not going back. Like you need to come back to Indiana with us. And I hadn't even really started yet, but I, came back here with them and started, you know, every day I tried to have a phone call and try to, you know, move something forward and just yep. get it started in the midst of a pandemic. Um, and it was just one thing led to another where it was like, okay, well, I'm going to go back in a month. And yeah. I was like, well, my lease is up in the end of June. I want to spend the summer out here. Yeah. So I'll just move my stuff out and then I'll go back in the fall. And then we started having you know, the business. We needed to pivot. Sure. I was investing all my savings into this. So going to pay rent wasn't like a great, <laughs> yeah. so it just sort of like, kind of one thing led to another, but it has been, I mean, meeting Kristen, um, we have two interns that are based here too, recent uh, IU grads yeah. uh, that have been amazing to work with, um, getting to interact with so many people locally, doing yeah. podcasts locally, yeah. having the opportunity to meet with so many nonprofit leaders in yeah. person here in a way that I wouldn't have been able to. So it's been really cool to get um, in that sort of deep relationship with so much of the community and particularly the nonprofit community locally. Yeah. Um, that I see that as the biggest investment in, in addition to the people we've brought on too. Sure, well, and you know this from having grown up here, but there's two degrees of separation in Fort Wayne. I moved here from the Boston area in 94 and it was so different in so many ways, but I said it's, in some ways it's really great 
that everyone knows everyone. It's not always great, but it usually is. That and the cost of living kept me here. But now I'm like, oh, this is a great place to live too. Yeah. It wasn't the original motivator. A lot of it was cost of living, but um, the pandemic, I think the pandemic has made people think differently about where they live and work, obviously. And this um, is a pretty good time to be in Fort Wayne in a number of different respects. Yeah. And I think my job too, especially as this grows, you know, where Pond is today, we have almost 300 nonprofits on the platform in 30 six different states. Wow. Um, I think seeing how we have effectively spread within even just the Fort Wayne community and nonprofits better understanding what we do and getting engaged, it's clear how valuable it is to have those seeds in a lot of places yep. because of the fragmentation in the industry we talked about earlier. Sure. Um, you know, that I, I really want to be getting to <laughs> knock on wood if the pandemic does ultimately end <laughs> yeah. and you know yeah. travel and uh, getting together is resumed I think it's important for me to be in community and relationship I mean even the podcast um, we're already starting our next season and we're gonna do it in New York yep. with all leaders there locally yeah. because I think having that like local impact narrative is so important and kind of ties a season together and brings up the key issues there from a nonprofit realm. Um, and being able to take that kind of city to city around the country, I think would be really cool content marketing, engaging with members, um, helping them spread the word about what we're doing. Yeah. It's it's really powerful. Yeah, no, that's great. So so what is ultimately your vision for where Pond goes from here? It's obviously early, but you've had some early success. W what do you hope things look like a year or two down the road? Yeah, I mean, two years from now, um, I would love anyone who wants to sell to a nonprofit uh, is on the platform for the benefit of their own business and the benefit of the nonprofit sector. Yeah. So, um, you know, I would love to see that level of penetration within the nonprofit world too. I think we are seeing how that snowball could build and start to roll, um, you know, within company growth and marketing, there's, there's like a, a, a moment when you're kind of the thing, mm -hmm. <laughs> I, don't, I don't have like a good term for it, but yeah. it's like, so within the nonprofit world, there's um, a website and a service called GuideStar, mm -hmm. where you get like, a, or Charity Navigator, I think they've all kind of combined. This is for volunteers to say, where do I want to give my time? How is it ranked in terms of ethics and all these other things? Yes. So it's like a platform where if you're a nonprofit, you've got to go make sure your profile is updated. And it's like the 2 million nonprofits around the country. Yeah. So I'm like, well, if GuideStar has that level of familiarity, familiarity and penetration, and Pond could provide value where they actually get paid to update their listing sure. and use it to make purchases and save money and raise and get money to spend on things. I'm like, as long as we are building the trust and rapport and doing it in, in uh, a productive and helpful way, how we expand the platform and the number of providers and how members use it in the community we're building, I don't see a reason why it couldn't you know, be something any nonprofit in the country can take advantage of. Sure, sure. And just and just to clarify, no cost for a nonprofit to be to join Pond, correct? No, it's yeah. completely free. They earn money when they yeah. engage. Um, and, you know, with, that's why we think, especially as it scales, I don't think that needs to change because, you know, when you think about uh, not to get too like theoretical, but the inter on, the, on the internet, the product is us as yeah, consumers, sure. right? So Google is monetizing us, Facebook is monetizing us. Yeah. And I think part of the innovation in our model around how to rethink that B2B marketing motion mm -hmm. where you're just paying 
for data and information on people to get in front of them, but not out of their own volition. Yeah. yeah. Um, where like to be able to turn around and say, yeah, you're the product. Yeah. Like you are the product yeah. upon, but we're your agent. Yeah. We're yeah. N- we're not selling you in the same way that Google and Facebook are. We are partnered with you. Yep. To get you valued for your time and get you to the things you need on your terms. It's it's access, but it's vetted access. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so every new enterprise has detractors. It has resistance, and I'm sure there are some nonprofits who have said that sounds great, but what's the catch? So, what are some of the points of resistance? The, the friction that you're hearing from nonprofit decision makers and what do you say in response to that? Yeah, I, it's definitely a lot of that. It's yeah. too good to be true. Sure. Um, and I'm like, okay, well, you know, can we take a minute to sort of explain yeah. how it works and why? Um, and I, I think that helps. Um, I think there is definitely, because it's new, it's not necessarily that it's that complicated. It just is really new. Yeah. So when, from a marketing perspective, yeah. you're always trying to think like, okay, if I could just say, this is the Uber of X, like yeah. that helps people sure, place sure. it. And and I've said with the different marketing folks that we've, we've worked with or on our own team, I'm like, I would much rather have an innovative product that's hard to package yeah. than fancy packaging yeah. on something boring. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's a great way of thinking about it. Yeah. So we, we will keep improving and iterating on that to yeah. make people... Um, make it easier for them to understand. Because I would just say that's a big thing is like, there's multiple steps to it. So I have to like piece it all together. Why would I do it? When would, okay, yeah, no. Oh, we were looking for that. You know, so I will connect with so many people who there's this resistance. There was even a local nonprofit who I connected with on LinkedIn Mm -hmm. um, and reached out and was like, love what your organization is doing. Like, I'd love to tell you about what we're doing and if you can give me some feedback. And she was great. She was like, honestly, I don't think I have any use for what you do, but I'm happy to chat. Yeah. So we go to get coffee. Yeah. It ends up being like an hour and a half conversation. And we get to the point where she's like, oh, well, actually, you know, we do this event in the fall where we do an auction, but we sort of like do it on paper. Is there like a better tool we could use? (laughs) And I'm like, yeah, Yeah. you know, there's, we've got lots of auction tools and sometimes it's embedded in broader fundraising platforms and, you know, got to the comfort, the trust level of sharing that with me to help. Yeah. And now she's like one of our biggest advocates, like yeah. posting, like I thought LinkedIn or I thought um, Pond was too good to be true. And it's been so helpful. And it's, just, yeah. you know, so I think I've seen some of those posts. <laughs> yeah, actually, yeah. It's like, OK, we just, you know, I got to be patient. Yeah, those sure. will build. Sure. Uh, particularly within a given community. Sure. Well, sometimes people, they, they don't know what they don't know mm-hmm. and not being aware of some of the tools that might be out there. Well, and, and and not to get too political, but the last year has taught us that people are resistant to new things even when they're potentially very good for them. So this is just another example of that. Yeah, and I think that's another really good, when you talk about resistance points, I think back a lot. So when I was at Goldman, when I was in the, the executive office, who spent a lot of time on the strategy with their consumer business. They were had a consumer savings part of the business and we're rolling out a mobile app around it and thinking a lot. They had acquired a company called Clarity Money, which was like a personal budgeting app. And I drew a lot of parallels to budgeting or like diet and exercise mm-hmm. where, yeah, of like literally any nonprofit leader, you could ask them, do you think you could have better tools or be better using your technology? Literally every person would say yes. Yeah. And so it's similar to be like every person you talk to would be like, do you think you could probably be exercising more? And they'd be like, well, yeah, of course. Yeah. And you're like, well, why don't you? And they give you a bunch of reasons. But, yeah, so if sure. you actually, from a product development and marketing perspective, how do you kind of, without them even knowing it, get them to take the step or buy in? Sure. A lot of those those like traditional methods are 
can you gamify it, make it kind of like fun and interesting? Yeah. I think a big thing for us that we focus on from a brand perspective, can we make it comfortable? Yeah. Can we just make it like not stressful? Um, and it's also, how do you make it a really small step? Yeah. So that's why it's free. It takes you two minutes to join. You decide when you want to engage further, but it starts to be within your like stream of what you think sure. about because you're going to get one email from us a week that shows you some options of things and you decide when you want to engage. But it's yep. like incrementalizing, if that's a word, if you can make it incremental steps towards um, that more productive behavior that everybody knows they want, yeah. but don't think they have time for money for, you know, comfort with trust, et cetera. Sure. So where does the name come from? Um, so we worked with a branding agency. Yeah. Uh, so I won't try to act like, oh, we just had this epiphany and wrote the name. Um, I'll be, that was an investment. And I think yeah. a really, really important one. Our first name was Empower Us, okay. which was the letter M, capital P, capital U. So you all explain it every time. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. It was like people misspelled yeah. it, emails but went the to the But the URL wrong is available. The URL. Yeah. There's a reason the URL is available. Yes. Very important. Again, as I said earlier, yeah. my background was not marketing. Sure, this has been the sure. most, sure. the biggest learning curve that is within my realm of responsibility. Obviously, I'm not uh, coding the software. Sure, um, sure. But the marketing piece in, when I was an investment banker, you had a 20-page investment memo to explain why something was a good idea. <laughs> I have like four words, right? That is an unbelievably hard jump to make. Oh, sure. And that kind of copywriting and mindset is such a big challenge that oh, I, sure. I, I practice every day. But when it came to the brand, we used, um, it was a friend of mine yep. um, that was from New York that I knew had his own agency and does incredible work. And this is a big investment and it, yep. it really paid off because what they sort of discovered and how we got to the name out of a bunch of, of interesting options. Um, my favorite, just looking back on it, the other option was that we were going to be called Power Tools. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> which I'm like, I don't know that that would have been the same. <laughs> uh, the that's same that's a lot different than Pond. Yeah, yes. That's a different um, Yeah. But no, the, when we got to Pond, actually their suggestion was Big Pond. Mm -hmm. And we all looked at it and someone on the team was like, there's nothing just called Pond. Like if you Google the yeah. word Pond, like that's a completely, you'll find like local Pond maintenance, yeah. <laughs> but it's, yeah. it's a really wide open space from an SEO perspective. Yeah. And when we talked through it, it was like, oh, wow. People use so much water imagery and how they explain being overwhelmed. Yeah. It yeah. feels like the ocean. Uh, I'm drowning. Yeah. Feels, you know, that those sentiments um, and the idea of the internet at large, or when you face a problem, you have no idea what to do or how to solve it. It feels like you're in the ocean. Mm -hmm. And can you shrink the ocean into a pond, which is yeah. comfortable, approachable, and, and people get the emotion that comes from that sure. as a concept and as a word, mm -hmm. it's amazing because people have to pause on the word. Yeah. And it's something I didn't appreciate until like a month or two ago, where when you hear someone, in most words, you can just sort of talk through quickly about when they get to the word pond, even though it's one syllable, you kind of have to slow down yeah. and it makes it so much stickier. And then people talk back to me in pond metaphor. Okay. So they'll say, oh yeah, we really want to jump in. We've heard great things about pond. You guys are making yeah. a splash. Like I want to huh. dip my toe. Yeah. And people I'm talking to for the first time. Interesting. So you see how yeah. the imagery of the brand 
helps solidify it in their mind and what they're supposed to feel about it, even yeah. before they, but I don't really understand it yet. We get that a lot. Yeah, well, and my first thought was it helps nonprofits be a big fish in a small pond. So, you know, there, it makes sense. I don't know why it makes sense, but it makes sense. And the the design aesthetic is really great. It's comforting and it's kind of, it builds trust in a strange way that, you know, in a way that design can do, so. Yeah, and I think my my view on the brand, not I'm not a design expert at all. Luckily, um, my co-founder, Kiera, before she actually taught herself how to code in her free time, was a designer, okay. um, which I just think makes the work she does really, really sure. special um, and, and a great partnership for us. But um, my view on the brand was I got to work with CEOs and CFOs of major companies, and we were always taught to make them feel like they were the most important person in the world mm -hmm. when we were their banker. How can I scale that feeling for every nonprofit leader through a platform that could do something simple, similar? Yeah. And when you talk about how the brand can inform that, when that's all you have before we get the personal interaction, uh, that's been a big focus for me is like, is people, and similar to the kids table concept, it's like, how do we really uplift them and empower them and, and, and make it feel like this was within reach, yeah. um, both personally, uh, for them, but also their organization, and then like structurally, how can how can we help them pay for it? How can we how can we make the process simpler? Uh, that's that's really how I want to make sure the brand is translating what we're actually doing. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's good stuff, and it stands out, and and you've done a great job of making a splash, if I can extend the metaphor. <laughs> so, um, one of the things that I wanted to ask you about is what are you working on? But your answer to that is pond. <laughs> so, from a marketing perspective, beyond building the brand, what are some things you've been spending time on, and and what's what's working well? Where are the challenges from a marketing standpoint? Yeah, I think what I love is there's so much for us to play with around marketing because that central ethos of like, okay, yeah, take what people are spending money on in marketing and try to twist it into like a, a pond structure. Yeah. So some of the things we're working on with our provider base is to say, okay, um, we've heard from people that you wanna sponsor things or you want like more of your content in front of our audience. Understandable, you wanna do that, you put value on it. What if we could put together like an educational series where, yeah, we're featuring providers who are subject matter experts on certain things, mm -hmm. and then people who join get paid for joining. Like we pass through the sponsorship oh, wow. in a really virtuous way where that goes into their account. Yeah. They've now learned about something and engaged that they probably, you know, they may not have. Sure. Um, the provider can see who was interested in engaging them if they want to reach out for the one-on-one, -on -one, which they then also pay for. Sure. So it's like, and now they've got more money in their account to make them say, oh, wait, I need to go find something. You know, we've been wanting to get something new. How do I find it? And it brings them back to get engaged and sort of drive that sort of virtuous cycle. Um, I think there's a lot of interesting stuff for that on the marketing front for us yep. because of the structure of the platform. I mean, I even think about, we just did a sweepstakes that we wrapped up last week for about six weeks called Launchpad. Um, we had 13 of our providers sponsor bonuses to go into um, 13 organizations who referred their peers to the site. Okay. And so it was a marketing spend funded by our providers because they wanted to have the visibility and pass through into the nonprofit's accounts. So now we have 13 members that have $2,000 that really empowers them to go buy something that they've been needing to uh, or putting off and get more engaged. So now they're updating their needs, evaluating providers, providers reaching out. So it, it has this, this interesting benefit for us where a dollar spent 
even though that was funded by providers. But if we were even to say, you know, new joiner gets a hundred dollars added to your account when you take your first meeting, because we know when someone takes one meeting, they're likely to take four. Yeah. Um, so I think that those like incentives and introducing more ways for people to engage and add to their balances that are also helpful within their oh, own sure. work sure. are where I'm spending a lot of time on our next marketing steps. Yeah, well, it's a great model. And, you know, for the vendor, a lot of people may be thinking, oh, it's, you know, you're putting a lot on the on the vendors. But I would absolutely encourage my clients, even if you have to pay to get in front of the right type of prospect, much better spend than, you know, a mass media advertisement where there's going to be a ton of waste. This is much more targeted, much yeah. higher quality lead. Yeah, yeah, two things I'd raise there. Back to your prior question of like, what are the contrarians saying? Yeah. Um, I would say six months ago, a lot of people were like, yeah, but a company is not going to pay, give money that someone could then go spend on their competitor's product. And I'm like, I understand why that doesn't feel good in that one instance, but what's happening when you give money to Google yeah. for a Google ad that's yeah. benefiting, it's benefiting no one. Well, right? it's already happening, right? If I see an ad for, you know, KitKat, I'm going to say, I want a snack. I'm not necessarily going to get a KitKat. I may go into yeah. my, my, you know, store and get whatever is closest to the hand. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, there's that response. And then my other response is like, well, they are, it's happening. Like, you can... Yeah. You can detract, but it's happening sure, sure. and it's working. Yeah. Um, so I, I think that it, that's been really interesting to debunk. And I was just talking to the CEO of, of a nonprofit CRM and fundraising platform today. And he revealed to me, you know, the average um, software as a service company, SaaS company serving this sector pays $2 for every dollar in ARR, annual recurring revenue. Okay. How many of them do you think their subscriptions are 50 bucks? Yeah. No, they're like thousands of dollars. Sure, sure. So this as a as a spend is way more than the nonprofit would ever get for having a sales call, which sure. would be zero. Sure. <laughs> sure. Um, and for them, it's way more efficient to be doing that, getting more engaged with their customers or potential customers. And, you know, if they've got, if it's a thousand dollar product and they have 10 meetings and as long as they close one to two of them per 10, that's good use of time and a good use of money. Yeah, great return. Yeah. All right. Well, we're going to go now to the speed round of the show. We're asking three Ooh. quick questions, and two of them are very similar to what we've already talked about. In fact, <laughs> we kind of talked about the third. Um, but the first question is, in terms of career advice, you know, you've you've taken some turns. You've taken a big leap um, recently. What's your best career advice for someone just starting out or might be considering doing something very different than what they've done throughout the start of their career? Yeah, I... Well, first would say, sorry if this is not rapid fire, but um, someone recently told me that there's no such thing as good advice, just good stories. Uh. And I, I really liked that because I listened to so many like podcasts and founder interviews and stuff. And that for, it really resonated that I'm like, you're not just saying, oh, they did that, so I'm going to do this. It's yeah. like, I listened to the thought process and the narrative and the story and saw where that intersected mine. Um, so I think for me, the the advice or the story is really like, it has been a pro the whole process from having the idea that I could leave my job and go do something on my own to doing it, to starting it, to failing, to doing it again, to growing, um, has just been one long process of better understanding myself. Yep. And I don't think I did enough of that work earlier on. Sure. It was almost like I had a job and I was busy and I was able, and it was paying me and it was, I didn't have to worry about much. It kind of like kept me going. Yeah. But I'm so grateful, even though it was really, really hard the past two years, a lot of tears, a lot of dark moments, uh, a lot of loneliness, honestly. Mm -hmm. um, 
but brought me to those moments of like really better understanding who I am because you cannot be a founder and an entrepreneur if you are not in lockstep understanding of yourself. It's just, it's too hard. There's too much to ask for. Um, So I would say maybe that boils down to the advice of make sure you have a therapist (laughs) 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 and, and just make sure you're really putting the work in to, to get to understand yourself better and love yourself because yeah. you, you're going to need all of yourself to do it. Yeah. Great advice. Okay. Second question. If you were going to describe pond as concisely as you could, that's probably something you've had to do a lot. How would you do that? Yeah. I'd say it's like a, a matchmaking service for people who at nonprofits who need tools or services and they don't know what they want um, and really bringing those solutions to them and actually helping them pay for it. So um, that would be my. That's good. That's really good. Wow. Okay. And then the last question, um, obviously we've talked about the fact that we were seemingly coming out of a pandemic. We may be headed back into quarantine. Nobody knows, but one thing we do know is we've learned some lessons along the way. What's something you've learned during the pandemic that you didn't know before and you think will stick with you moving forward? I I guess it sort of ties into my answer to the first one, but I've, I just spent so much time by myself and alone. Um, and I, you know, we didn't necessarily talk about this much, but I am like the most extroverted person that you've ever met on that spectrum, like jumping off of the end uh, and, you know, have a great community of friends and, and uh, people that I love back in New York that I've been without um, while I've been here. And I think that has it has brought me to better appreciate the time I spend alone. Like Mm -hmm. not to say that I need to be in isolation all the time. Like it's okay (laughs) to be extroverted and need to fill your cup with other people. But I, I think it's easy. It was, it is always easy for me to, to mix up the, Oh, I need to be with other people because it fills my cup and like whatever I'm not happy with about myself that I'm kind of avoiding. And so I've had to stare that just so like plainly in the face that uh, it's definitely taught me the value of being alone and getting to know yourself better because uh, I haven't had a choice. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, as a fellow extrovert, I, I feel you. I definitely think that was something that I had the opportunity to flex that muscle that I had not flexed much in the past 50 years. So good and bad things about that. Well, thank you for putting some of your extrovert energy in front of us today. Mitch, it was a pleasure meeting you and talking with you and congratulations on everything you're doing with Pond. Thank you. It was a pleasure to be here and love the conversation. And if folks wanted to learn more about Pond, where's the best place for them to do that? Yeah, of course. It's joinpond.com is our website. Uh, We're on all socials, uh, join Pond as well. And I personally look me up on on LinkedIn. I'm super active and love engaging with people there. So, and my email is mitch at joinpond.com. I'm happy to kind of chat with anyone who has questions or wants to learn more. Excellent. Well, thanks again, Mitch. And thanks to all of those of you who took the time to listen to this episode. We'll be back next week with another great guest. And we hope you will join us then. 